Hello. My name is Tapu Mazeba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 67. First, an apology for the delay. In truth, I guess I needed a bit of a formal break, but never gave myself one and ultimately paid the price. In the future, I'll do better to announce weeks off if there are any. To make up for it, we'll have a much quicker turnaround for Episode 68, and Episode 68 will cover updates to the LVMH-Tiffany conflict and an update to the Fortnite story. Now, two announcements. First, the podcast now has a Twitter account, at ComawarePod, C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, same as the Instagram account. So if you'd like to follow and see the occasional commercial awareness retweet as you scroll on your Twitter feed, it would be much appreciated. Second announcement, and an exciting one, I'll be taking part in the upcoming All About Law Virtual Lawfare. I have a webinar, and my talk is titled The Commercial Awareness Podcast, The Webinar, How to Decipher a Story and Connect the Dots. Very self-referential and true to brand. I'll be revisiting a number of stories we've covered, but also sharing exactly how I read a story, my most used sources, and any tips and tricks I have about commercial awareness. It'll be a bit like a video podcast or vodcast too, so it's a chance for you to provide feedback on a potential format for the podcast. The talk will be on Tuesday, the 27th of October at 10 a.m., and I'll be available during and after for any questions. If you'd like to sign up, the link is the first link in the episode description and is also the link in the bio of the podcast Instagram page, once again, at comwarepod, C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. So, I hope to see you there, and if not, as always, thanks for listening and for your patience. Now, the headlines. First, in a follow-up from episode 56, Unilever's Dutch shareholders by a 99% vote have agreed to simplify the group structure by making the London base its only HQ. UK shareholders vote on the 12th of October. Next era, the world's largest solar and wind power generator has surpassed big oil company and once the largest public company in the world, ExxonMobil, by market capitalization, showing an investor shift towards renewable energy. In response to a dip in global car sales and rising costs to develop zero-emissions technology, Honda is pulling out of Formula One as an engine supplier, reallocating F1 engineers to new energy technologies divisions. In law firm updates, Field Fisher is beginning a consultation process among its secretarial staff, and BCLP is developing a long-term working model that will see most daily operations being conducted at home, with the office seen as a space for team projects. In an update to a story first reported on in episode 31, Uber has successfully appealed the revocation of its TFL license to operate in London, with the Westminster Magistrates Court now calling Uber a, quote, fit and proper, end quote, operator. And finally, as customers grow more reliant on digital banking services and a drop in footfall to branches, TSB Bank is closing 164 branches and cutting almost 1,000 jobs. If you'd like to read more on those stories, links as always are in the description. This episode's format is two longer reads. For the first read, the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, has been delayed for the second time, now aiming for an April 2021 theatrical release. Yes, I'm being serious, that's the first read. No Time to Die is meant to be Daniel Craig's final movie as the iconic James Bond. And considering the last James Bond film grossed over £100 million in the UK, many cinema chains were banking on the movie to hold on to its 12 November release date of this year, after already being delayed from April this year as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown. However, because of a rise in cases once more, 
and a visible lack of confidence in cinema outings as a result of the less-than-optimal box office results of the one blockbuster film that did release in cinemas this year, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. No Time to Die, along with a number of other blockbusters, have moved their theatrical releases to next year. And that has obviously caused some problems for cinemas. In particular, Cineworld, the UK's largest and the world's second-largest cinema chain, has announced that it will indefinitely close all of its US and UK cinemas, putting 45,000 jobs at risk. The chain's chief exec, Mookie Greidinger, told staff in an email that audience numbers, quote, dwindled to tiny and unsustainable levels and the delay of bond has been a huge blow, end quote. In a public statement, Cineworld said that it, quote, cannot provide customers in both the US and the UK, the company's primary markets, with the breadth of strong commercial films necessary for them to consider coming back to theaters against the backdrop of COVID-19, end quote. Cineworld, however, has a number of other problems. After aggressive expansion, such as the 2017 $3.6 billion acquisition of U.S. cinema chain Regal, the group finds itself $8.2 billion in debt. The company is also projected that under current conditions, they could breach loan covenants in December and next June. The company is currently in negotiations with its lenders, which involves a syndicate of banks, and is also in a legal battle with Canadian cinema chain Cineplex after Cineworld pulled out of a $2.1 billion acquisition this past June after agreeing in December before the pandemic. We've heard that story before. And so, a lot of work for lawyers around Cineworld. An M&A dispute in Canada, and financing work, potential restructuring, insolvency, real estate, and employment work in the U.S. and U.K., it's also worth noting that Odeon Cinemas has followed suit to a certain extent, informing customers that a quarter of its cinemas will now only be open on weekends with the hope of retaining all 5,500 UK staff. They too have blamed the lack of theatrical releases. And in response to the Cineworld closures, UK PM Boris Johnson has said he would, quote, encourage people to go out to the cinema, enjoy themselves, and support, end quote, movie theaters. So, let's talk about it. And we've kind of already done the laundry list. But I think the first thing I want to do is slightly challenge the way I even introduced the story, which is that somehow No Time to Die is the sole reason for Cineworld's woes. A number of news outlets have crafted the story as that, and even the staff email the chief exec of Cineworld wrote describes it as such. But I truly hope that by detailing everything else surrounding Cineworld can help us form a more well-rounded perspective on all of this. First, of course, I would agree. Large commercial films not getting released in cinemas leaves little reason for the everyman, pun intended, to visit a cinema. However, it also seems that Cineworld may have spread itself a little thin as a result of accumulated debt exacerbated by a number of acquisitions, including the acquisition they are now in a legal battle over. And if you were harsh, you'd say that the writing was on the wall even before this latest movie delay. And if you were less harsh, which is the avenue we'll take for the sake of discussion, Maybe they truly are victims of circumstance, considering the website We Are UK Film details 2018 as the highest grossing box office year in the UK ever, with 2019 not being too far from that, so the numbers did appear rather steady. The pandemic to some extent left a stark number of industry shadows of themselves, but it has also presented what we can call culture shifts. We've detailed the culture shifts before, most notably looking at how e-commerce has risen at a faster rate because of the pandemic. But let's use this opportunity to spread our wings to different industries. Film and TV. 
Netflix, for example, saw 16 million new accounts in the first quarter of the year and told investors to expect more growth until lockdowns were lifted. It seems home streaming is a model that is directly benefited from the lockdown as viewers spend more time at home. And so, one does wonder whether this will be a long-term shift, or in April 2021, or whenever commercial releases return to cinemas, will things get back to some sort of normalcy. But even that brings its own new issues. Disney's Mulan, for example. $200 million budget, and was released on Disney+, Plus, Disney's home streaming platform where users could pay a premium on top of their subscription fee to watch the movie. It seems that even with the convenience of home viewing, the on-demand purchases were significantly lower than the amount it took to produce the film. And truth be told, we don't have enough time today to have a real heart-to-heart as to whether Netflix's movies ever actually make their money back. And so, what will this mean for future film and TV production, and in particular, film financing, a practice area a number of firms work in? Will this shrink that aspect of the industry as well? And what for the new challenges and costs that come with film production? an industry that brought in £1.77 billion in the UK in 2019, now facing changes in the midst of a pandemic, with constant testing required, limited crews, and production that can be halted for weeks with one positive test. In fact, for this latter point, when we mentioned Slaughter and May's UK government mandate to assist in reviving the film and TV industry in the headlines of episode 66, it was actually to play a role in this. It was to advise the UK government in developing a temporary reinsurance facility so film and TV insurers could adequately cover disrupted productions. And so, film and TV is not only an industry we all enjoy with the media we consume, but it provides a lot of work for firms, and what's happening with cinemas in some part provides new work, but also presents new challenges for future practice. And somehow I've managed to speak about film and TV without even mentioning IP yet, But how will IP and distribution deals change as production companies potentially abandon distribution contracts with cinemas and opt for streaming platforms? And of course, in the midst of all this, how do cinemas survive as they await commercial releases in safe conditions to have hundreds of people in rooms together again? And so, this story has allowed us to consider a number of practice areas affected by this news, and the challenges the industry may face going forward, especially in the midst of a culture shift that may be here to stay as a result of the lockdown. The cynical interpretation of all this, especially after the laundry list of the potential work available for lawyers in Cineworld's case, would of course be, well, there's work for lawyers, that's all that matters. But I'd imagine that having such a cynical view may not win over many potential clients. So it's important to first understand the motivations behind Cineworld's acquisition expansion, the challenges they currently face because of the new normal, and what solutions lawyers could provide them to not only remain solvent, but potentially recover when things get back to normal, whenever that may be. And considering those questions for any company struggling in any industry will help us understand not only the general challenges certain potential clients may face, but could also guide you towards the kind of work and sectors you are particularly interested in. Credit for this story goes to Alice Hancock, Cristiano Dallabona, Mark Sweeney, and We Are UK Film. Next, let's talk about Walmart's sale of Asda. It finally happened. One of the first M&A transactions we ever spoke about was Sainsbury's and Asda. Back then, all the way in episode 13, the Competition and Markets Authority took issue with Britain's second and third largest supermarkets joining forces, 
and were concerned with the lack of competition it would create, especially at that time in the midst of Brexit uncertainty. Two episodes later, in episode 15, we reported that the CMA had officially blocked the merger, much to the chagrin of the two companies, who accused the CMA of a, quote, stringent and interventionist approach, end quote. And at the time, however, we failed to mention the other aspect of the merger, which was, to be frank, Walmart's UK exit plan. And so, let's address that now with a little history lesson. Walmart is, as you may know, an American big box supermarket chain. Walmart acquired Asda in 1999 with the intention of creating a similar shopping culture to that of the US, big box shopping a little distance from the city center. And though Walmart's ownership of Asda can't really be seen as a failure, Walmart Group has since found more interest in emerging markets China and India through their ventures with JD.com and Flipkart in those respective nations. Walmart also has bigger fish to fry back home with e-commerce powerhouse Amazon, which interestingly enough has now formed a partnership with Morrisons for same-day deliveries in select cities in the UK. Furthermore, it is fair to acknowledge that Asda probably missed a trick in remaining big box while their competitors Sainsbury's and Tesco went smaller in their express, metro, and local stores. Combine that with competitive pricing rivals in Aldi and Lidl, and Asda has pretty much remained in the same spot they were in when Walmart bought them 21 years ago, which is still a big four supermarket, but right behind Sainsbury's and Tesco. In fact, even in the lockdown period, though Asda has seen growth in sales and online purchases, its growth has been half compared to Sainsbury's. And Asda's market share is now 14.5% compared to the 2013 peak of 18%. This relative stagnation is best illustrated when we consider that Walmart bought Asda for £6.7 billion in 1999, and this majority stake sale we're talking about today values Asda at £6.8 billion 21 years later. And of course, there is something to be lauded about stability, but you get the point. The point being, Asda didn't become the Walmart of the UK the way Walmart had envisioned. And so, Walmart has been interested in parting with the majority stake of Asda for quite some time. There was the failed merger with Sainsbury's last April, and since February of this year, Walmart had been in talks with private equity firms considering a sale of a majority stake all the while also considering taking Asda public. This took pause in April because of the pandemic, but talks resumed in July, culminating last week when Walmart accepted the ESA Brothers offer, backed by private equity group TDR Capital for a majority stake in Asda. The majority stake purchase values Asda at £6.8 billion, and before the deal was confirmed, there were talks of the purchase price being £6.5 billion, which implies a 95-96% to stake purchase, but we can't be sure as these details remain undisclosed. Just making that guesstimate to illustrate that is probably for a large part of the business. Let's talk about the buyers a bit more. The ESA brothers, Mohsen and Zuber, are owners of the EG Group, a petrol station operator with revenues of 20 billion euros. EG Group's business is in fuel station forecourts of which they own almost 6,010 countries and employ 44,000 people. Some of the convenience stores they already host on their forecourts include Spar, Cajafour, Greggs, Starbucks, and Subway. TDR Capital, a British private equity firm, owns 50% of EG Group, 
and the PE firm, along with the Issa brothers, will be acquiring this Asda stake through a new investment vehicle. They fended off competition from other PE firms, and there may be something to do with EG's relationship with Asda before this. Before the stake purchase, EG Group trialed a pilot collaboration with Asda, in which three Asda on the move stores opened in EG Group 4 courts in the Midlands, seemingly an attempt from Asda to shift strategy to smaller convenience stores with essentials. And so, the success or ambition shown with this collaboration may have demonstrated to Walmart that these buyers had visible enthusiasm and investment in Asda. The majority stake buyers will keep Asda's current chief exec, Roger Burnley, and the rest of Asda's management team on board. The deal will be financed using £4 billion of debt, comprising of high-yield bonds and leveraged loans. As for firm involvement, Slaughter and May are advising Walmart, Skadden advised the Issa brothers, and Kirkland and Ellis are advising TDR Capital. And so, that's the story in a nutshell. But let's go further and consider motivations for everyone involved. Firstly, why did Walmart agree to sell a majority stake, but not the entire company? Well, they wanted to sell because of the reasons listed earlier on. The UK has been rather competitive, the acquisition never truly hit the heights once imagined, they found more lucrative business in emerging markets, and on top of that, they have their own battle to fight in the US against Amazon. This sale reduces their exposure from a market that hasn't been as lucrative as they wanted, and also gives them some liquidity to better place itself as it tries to go toe-to-toe against Amazon. Walmart's interest in TikTok, and though it's still in limbo, which is why I haven't provided a full update, but the tentative agreement is for Walmart to acquire a 7.5% stake in TikTok's U.S. business, which shows an interest in diversifying on their end beyond supermarkets in the U.S. TikTok provides them with pretty much a trove of market research over what products to market, produce, and sell to Gen Z buyers, and beyond that gives the group new revenue streams in digital media. To continue that foray, Liquidity may be necessary, combined with partial exits from other markets as we've seen here to focus on new businesses. Partial because, as said, they retain a minority stake. This means they can keep a foothold in the UK market and reap the benefits of the sustained financial performance of ASDA. Oh, and one more thing. There's this pesky little lawsuit that ASDA's subject to, which has been called one of the largest equal pay disputes in UK history. We spoke about it in episode 9, But Asda, along with Sainsbury's, Next, Morrison's, and Tesco, are all facing similar equal pay lawsuits, to which if the retailers lose, could cost the sector £8 billion. The claim is brought by Lee Day, representing workers from all the aforementioned retailers, as shop floor workers seek equal pay to that of depot and distribution centre workers. The Supreme Court is currently considering whether the two jobs are comparable, for which the Court of Appeal concluded they were because ASDA used common terms and conditions for both workplaces. The claim began in 2016, and Lee Day are seeking compensation between £10,000 and £20,000 for each worker. The claim represents 43,000 ASDA workers, so, legal costs aside, potential compensation liability between £430 and £860 million. So, unless the majority stake purchase included an indemnity from Walmart to pay for any of the costs, Walmart were probably interested in reducing their exposure from this lawsuit and any others by selling. Now, why would TDR Capital, a PE firm, want a majority stake in ASDA? To be more succinct, ASDA is a stable business that looks like it could do better than it's currently doing, 
which is PE's bread and butter. Buy a business, improve it, and sell your stake in the company for a premium. TDR is going 50-50 with the ESA brothers for this purchase, and so it will be in their interest to get the controlling stake in the company, lead whatever changes they see fit to improve the business, and hopefully, in the next 5-10 to 10 years, sell it for more than they bought it. This seems like a good time to buy with the willing seller in Walmart, and a chance for Asda to take this e-commerce shift as an opportunity to increase market share and innovate. And considering TDR owns 50% of EG Group, the firm may be interested in continuing business with the ESA brothers as they go further in retail, beyond convenience stores. And on that note, why do the ESA brothers want Asda? By now, you know I love a good conflation so long as it's not too reckless, so let's conflate. It's probably a distant memory by now, but the second headline for today mentioned a renewables company surpassing a big oil company in market cap. So to conflate that idea of a culture shift to renewables with this, you'd wonder what the long-term viability is for fuel stations, whether they have convenience stores or not. And compound that with the travel restrictions throughout this year and social distancing, maybe this entire period has made the ESA brothers consider diversification. In fact, just last year, EG Group was interested in acquiring U.S. fuel station group Speedway for $17 billion until it was outbid by Japanese company 7&I Holdings, owner of 7-Eleven convenience stores, who bought it for $21 billion. And although they remain in talks to purchase Australian forecourt operator Caltex, this ASDA acquisition shows a strategic shift. Though EG Group has experience with convenience stores, this shift to full-scale supermarkets is definitely some diversification. And there's the idea of synergies to consider as well. Asda has already piloted smaller stores in EG's fuel station forecourts, and so this collaboration could be extended, giving Asda a sustainable model to launch convenience stores without the real estate headache of finding wholly new sites. And considering the chief exec and Asda's management team will remain, the new buyers probably feel comfortable with the management's vision for Asda's growth as it lines up with their own. In fact, the new buyers also pledged to invest £1 billion in the next three years, and so things do look like they're looking up. But now we need to acknowledge the sticking point. Debt. Though EG Group has reported €20 billion Euro revenues and is valued at £10 billion, it also has a debt of almost £8 billion. And as said, the acquisition involves a new vehicle separate of EG Group taking on a rather high interest debt of £4 billion. And debt is rather common for any acquisition, but we don't have to look too far to find a case study for when taking on debt to expand can go wrong, considering Cineworld in the first story of this episode. But private equity bread and butter, once again, includes using a reasonable amount of cash for a purchase and debt for the rest, and those financing structures are usually constructed with the help of lawyers. Further, if tough times ever do arrive, lawyers will probably have the ability to amiably renegotiate debt considering the strong revenues and long-term financial performance of ASDA. Regardless, the nature of the debt being high interest is somewhat a bet on tough times to not arrive, and to be fair, e-commerce seems to be one of the sectors that will continue to grow regardless of the pandemic, but definitely helped by the pandemic. And so, those are the assumed motivations of everyone involved, and that last bit opens the door for even more lawyer involvement further down the line, and any decisions the management makes on how to make the company more profitable 
whether it be the creation of more convenience as the on-the-move stores in fuel station forecourts or elsewhere, further investment in e-commerce, or even closure of lesser-performing stores, all of that will involve lawyers. So we'll have to see what ASDA does next. And of course, the employment litigation surrounding the equal pay case. We should definitely follow that too. Now, does this tell us anything about the bigger picture? Diversification. Fuel station owners looking to diversify. Walmart looking to diversify too. Everybody's happy. Culture shifts as well, but also consumer culture. Walmart's chief exec throughout the stake sale has constantly rung home the idea that they are becoming more flexible in their ownership around the world, and one size doesn't fit all. ASDA couldn't really be Walmart in the UK, partly because of planning regulations differing from the US, probably due to the scarcity of space in the UK compared to the US. Further, there seems to have been a quicker online adoption in the UK compared to the US. I say all of this just so we can acknowledge that, whether in a case study you're doing in an assessment center, or you're simply asked what challenges a client may face when entering a new market, it's always worth noting that business cultures may vary, and so could consumer culture. Anecdote time, I think back to being in Canterbury for my bachelor's, and on weekends, some people would take a bus to go slightly out of the city center to go to ASDA, but that cost-benefit analysis never made sense to me considering Tesco Express and Sainsbury's Local were right there. And so, in the midst of this entire story, also consider your own shopping behaviors. Even consider your own behavior in relation to the first story. Are you more likely to take a longer trip to go to the big box, or is convenience key? Have you shopped online more often, and will you continue to? And linking back to the first story, would you have gone to see No Time to Die in cinemas? And if not, would you have paid £30 to watch it at home? You may not always represent the majority in those answers, but internalizing the stories in this manner will definitely help you acknowledge what matters within them. Credit for this story goes to Jonathan Ellie, Alistair Gray, Gabriella Kane, Melissa Repko, Amy Palmer, Jane Croft, Kay Wiggins, Robert Smith, and Andy Bounds. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at comawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.